Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, Crosspoint. So glad you are with us this morning in the house, and of course, welcome to those who are joining us uh, online. So glad that you could uh, check us out this morning, especially for those of you who are new. We're so glad that you're with us. Hey, uh, we're continuing our teaching series about personal identity called Identity and the Reconstructed Self. And uh, today we're going to be in our final week of this series. And uh, as I've said before, this is a thinking series. So we encourage you to put on your thinking hats, uh, particularly today. And to help you to think, I want to encourage you to uh, go to our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes, and follow along in the notes there, because I think those will be really helpful for helping you track what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. As well, if you have a copy of a Bible, paper or digital, turn with me to John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8. You're wondering where that is? Find the New Testament, flip over four books to the right, and you'll find the Gospel of John there. And we're going to be landing there, so keep your thumb in that uh, for today. Unless you have a digital Bible, you do not put your thumb in there. It's just a metaphor. Okay. Um, well, hey, this morning, we are going to be talking about the liberated self. In other words, I want to talk about identity and human freedom. Uh, because as it turns out, much of the confusion that we are facing today in our current social imaginary about identity is connected to a misunderstanding of freedom. So let me ask you this question. Does it ever feel like we're living in a culture of confusion? I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it's really hard to know what to think or what to believe these days. Uh, For example, uh, recent United States election, love our neighbors to the south, uh, but there's still some confusion about what's going on there. Was it a fair election? Was there a miscount? Was there tampering? I'm not an expert. I don't have an opinion, but it's confusing. Um, COVID-19, hey, that's a perfect example, right? To mask or not to mask? That is the question, right? Uh, there's a vaccine coming. They'll never have a vaccine, okay? Uh, you know, it's, it's about protecting people. Well, it's about protecting livelihoods. Confusion all around, right? And don't get me started about, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, cell towers. Um, <laughs> and the effects cell towers can have on cancer and et cetera. Or QAnon, if any of you are paying attention to QAnon. Anyway, here's the challenge. We're living in a day and age where it is getting harder and harder to know what to believe. And many would say this is because we're living in what's called a post-truth culture. Post-truth. This was Oxford Dictionary's word of the year in 2016. When I talk about post-truth, what do I mean by that? Well, Oxford says that It means that circumstances where appeals to emotion and personal belief become more influential in shaping public opinion than objective facts. You know, the the author Abdu Murray talks about this in in his book, uh, Saving Truth. He talks about two modes of post-truth. He says there's a soft mode and then there's a hard mode. So so soft post-truth means that we acknowledge that truth exists or certain things are true, but we don't care about the truth if it gets in the way of our personal preferences. So, for example, you might think that theft is a bad idea on your personal radar. However, when it comes to income tax time, right, it might get in the way of you getting a good tax return. So it goes out the window. That's soft post-truth. 
But then there's hard post-truth. And this this takes post-truth way further. It means that I'm willing to propagate blatant falsehoods, knowing that they're false, because doing so will serve a higher political or social agenda. And I mean, we see this, this hard version of truth, post-truth happening all the time. I mean, I've already talked about it, but we live, in a, we live in a day of fake news, disinformation, factoids, alt facts, right? So, more, so many people are getting their information from biased versions of the truth on social media sites or, or one-sided news agencies. Because here's the problem. The, the problem is, is that our goal has changed from trying to be the most truthful to being the first person to publish. And in a day where information, uh, instant information, is paramount, it's the first person to the finishing line that gets paid, okay? So because of that, fact-checking goes out the window. If I'm wrong, I'll print a retraction later that nobody will read. This is the day and age in which we live in. Now, I mean, uh, those who throw rocks, who live in glass houses, shouldn't throw stones, isn't that how the saying somehow goes, right? Unfortunately, Christians have succumbed to this mindset as well. We are not guilt-free around this. Um, they, some Christians might misapply the truths of Jesus to suit their own preferences or feelings in a soft truth kind of a way. Or some Christians might even use the media to misrepresent or falsify information about those they disagree with who are on the other side of the spectrum. Which, you know, fun, funny about it, I mean, that's a strange strange behavior, right? For those of us who claim to believe in a God who is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Who, who have such a high elevated value about truth, and yet we do this also. So here's one example. Uh, the infamous Joshua Fairstein and his infamous Red Cup controversy in 2015. Anybody remember this? So back in 2015, Starbucks came out with a new Christmas cup. It was a bright red Christmas cup. And when Joshua found out about this, he posted a video online, and he said that Starbucks had removed the word Christmas from their cups. That Starbucks was somehow no longer supporting Christmas. And of course, this video went viral, and Christians jumped on the bandwagon, and, and you know, everybody's like, oh, we need to boycott Starbucks, or we need to send a message to Starbucks. But the only problem is that since Starbucks started making its holiday cups in 1997, it has never had the word Christmas on its cups. It's had snowmen, and it's had snowflakes, and it's had Christmas ornaments. And not only that, Starbucks actually does acknowledge Christmas. They have a Christmas blend of their coffee. They've produced advent calendars. They have sold Christmas ornaments. So none of this was, in fact, true. So, so the point of this is just this. Every one of us can fall prey to this post-truth mindset. And the result is that now this has fully bloomed into a culture of confusion. So how do we get here? Well, part of the problem is because of the influence of what we would call postmodern thought. And I, you know, I spent some time in the first week of this series talking about that, so I'm not going to unpack that too much. But the, it's essentially this. is the idea that truth is predominantly or merely perspectival. In other words, you have a perspective of the truth, you have a perspective of the truth, and because of that, nobody can really have a true, pure, objective truth. So truth pretty much is just a matter of people's different perspectives coming at it from different angles. Um, and what this has done, you know, allowed to come out fully, is, is it led many people to simply relativize truth. In other words, truth is just what you make of it. There is no truth. Now, that's only half the problem. The culture of confusion is also fueled 
by our misunderstanding of the place of truth in respect to freedom. Let me say that again. The culture of confusion is also fueled by our misunderstanding of the place of truth in respect to freedom. Let me see what I mean by this, but first let me ask you a question. What is more important to you? Truth or freedom? See, as a culture, we've come to believe that that freedom is our highest good. We actually treat freedom like a value, when it's not actually a value, it's just a state of being, but we treat it like a value. And so we love freedom. We live for freedom. Freedom of choice, freedom, freedom of expression, freedom of religion. I mean, we have a Canadian charter of rights and freedoms, right? But the value that we have placed on individual freedoms in our culture has in many ways become overblown. And, and it's become so important to us as a culture that many would say that nobody, nobody should ever restrict my freedoms. And anybody who, you know, who tries to put a lid on my freedoms is seen as bigoted, oppressive, or immoral. So, so we've made freedom a virtue and we've made constraint a vice. So, for example, uh, a friend of mine posted something on Instagram the other day. I want to read it for you. Here's what it says. I do not owe a single person an explanation for why I'm living my life the way I am or why I do the things I do. Now, obviously, this person is not married. <laughs> right? Because I think if I said that to Karen, she'd say, well, if you have no explanation, then you need to find a new habitation. In other words, there's a doghouse, son, and it's out there, and you can go live in it if you have no explanation for your life. But statements like these, they, they kind of embody the spirit of our age, right? That spirit is this. Don't tell me how to live my life. In other words, don't step on my freedom, please. Now, one of the problems with this is this understanding of freedom is that it's essentially limited. You know, often when people talk about freedom in our, in our cultural conversation in this way, what they're really speaking about is autonomy. Well, what's autonomy? Well, the word autonomy is actually made up of two words, two Greek words, autos and nomos. Autos means self, nomos means law. The word autonomy essentially means a law unto oneself. I get to do when I want, how I want it, whenever I want it. And, and I think most of us, when you hear that definition, you can pretty much predict the problem when anybody wants to be ruled simply by their own autonomy. Because here's the thing, I mean, if anybody's a law unto themselves, what happens when two separate selves, two sovereign individuals come into conflict, right? Well, it turns out they both can't have it their way. You have to have a way to decide. And, and when freedom is the only value at stake in that conflict, how do you decide who wins? Well, there's only one way to decide, to decide. Reasonless power prevails. Might makes right. The powerful get to decide. You know, as, as I was preparing today's talk, I, I was reminded of uh, the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes from 1658. I, I heard this quote like 20 years ago, and it's always stuck in my heart and mind ever since then. And, and, and Thomas Hobbes, he, he invites us to imagine. He says, I want you to imagine what it would be like if we all kind of returned to what's called the state of nature, this state where everybody is autonomous, does their own thing, okay? Everyone is self-governed. He essentially, that this would essentially become, he says, this would essentially become a war of all against all. So as a matter of fact, this would, lead, this would lead to the destruction of society as we know it, if we all actually live this out. Uh, so we're going to put his quote up. I'm not going to read the whole quote, but I'm going to get to the end of it. And here's what he says. And and which is worst of all, this is what it would be like, continual fear. 
and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. This is a world where everybody is governed in absolute autonomy, and that's the price of it. So, so the real problem with this definition is that it only looks at one side of freedom. See, here's the thing. Is there, there's actually a difference between what we would know as negative freedom and positive freedom. And, I, and I'm borrowing these definitions from Oz Guinness in his book, A Free People's Suicide. Love that title. Great title. Free People's Suicide. And, and he, let me break this down for us this morning where he talks about negative freedom and positive freedom. So negative freedom is, is freedom from, okay? So it's freedom from interference, freedom from constraint. Don't hold me back. Don't tie me down. I'll do what I do when I want, whenever I want, which is autonomy, negative freedom. But there's also positive freedom. Positive freedom is freedom for, not freedom from. And it's the freedom to become something. It's the freedom to aspire to something. It's the, the, the freedom for excellence, the, the freedom for the good. It's about where I'm going. It's about who I should be. And here's the thing about life, is, is that negative freedom and positive freedom actually work together. They actually go hand in hand. So think of this, a talented athlete wants to become an Olympic medalist. The only problem is that that talented athlete has an addiction to alcohol. In order to become the Olympic medalist that he aspires to, he needs freedom from his addiction to alcohol. However, he also needs a freedom for, which is his aspiration to become this great Olympic athlete. So freedom from and freedom for often work hand in hand. The challenge in our present day is that our understanding uh, is, is in our understanding of what freedom for actually looks like. Because we, we lack one important factor in our freedom for. That one important factor is truth. Concrete truth is fundamental to positive freedom. But we're living in a day and age where Truth is primarily subjective. So preferences and opinions are elevated above facts and truth. And, and where this is leading us is actually towards a culture of confusion. Because as long as the truth is whatever you prefer, there's always going to be confusion, right? Because there's no understanding of what truth is. And so we have no answer to the question, what is the good that we are trying to become? And, and, and this culture of confusion has crept into our understanding of personal human identity. So that on the one hand, we, we want freedom from people's opinions. We want freedom from oppressive structures. They're going to tell me who I am. But then on the other hand, we want freedom for whatever version of the truth we prefer. And so when it comes to our personal understanding of identity in our culture, well, obviously, there's confusion. And so let me just read to you from Abdu Murray in his book, Saving Truth. And I just want to recommend this book to you. I think this is a book that I would, if I had a paper version, I have a digital version, I can't do this, but if I had a paper version, I would pass it on to people and just say, you've just got to read this book. But he summarizes what I've just been saying in, in a very eloquent way, in a way that I never could. Here's what he says. He says, the current climate in which people are forcibly prevented from sharing ideas has arisen because we have mistaken autonomy for freedom. They are related but different concepts. In a post-truth culture, where preferences and opinions are elevated over facts and truth, anything 
that challenges our preferences, even if a challenge is laced with facts, is deemed offensive and oppressive. How dare someone disagree with my preferences or opinions? Isn't freedom found in being able to fully express one's preferences and opinions without challenge? Western freedom is all about the reality to do, feel, and say whatever we want, so long as we don't hurt someone else, isn't it? So how does a follower of Jesus navigate these confusing times? I mean, what does the Bible say about this tension between truth and freedom? Well, as it turns out, Jesus actually has a lot to say about this. And so I want to invite us this morning to look at John chapter 8 and verse 31. And as we walk through the text together, I just simply want to make three critical observations about this tension. Let's start at verse 31. Here's what Jesus says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, Well, we we are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, here's the first observation. Is genuine faith liberates. Genuine faith liberates. Freedom is the result of authentic belief in truth. You'll notice that Jesus in the text, it says that he's addressing the Jews who had believed him, okay? Now, at first blush, this might seem like he's addressing his disciples, but a careful reading of the Gospel of John reveals that that these are actually believers who have more of a shallow or a superficial belief. These are the Jews who, in John 2, believed in Jesus when they saw his miracles, and, and yet Jesus says he would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. These are those who would later in John 6, would, would, when Jesus had taught them hard truths, would abandon Jesus and who would stop following him. They're, they're those with shallow belief, shallow faith. And Jesus is taking this opportunity to explain to them what it means to be a true disciple, what it means to have authentic faith that liberates. Jesus says a true disciple is someone who abides in Jesus' words. That word abide means to live, to dwell, to immerse yourself, to make yourself at home in. So the idea here is more than intellectual assent or agreement. This is more about a personal commitment, a moral resolve of the heart. Genuine faith is more than just a nod to God. A real disciple, Jesus says, hears his words, delights in his words, seeks to obey his words. And when you know the truth in this way, Jesus says, it will set you free. So freedom doesn't come before truth. Rather, truth comes before freedom. The truth will set you free. It liberates. It breaks shackles. And and the Bible is not against freedom. Freedom was God's idea. Freedom is, in fact, a good thing. The Bible says that human beings, when God created us, He created us with the capacity for freedom. He gave us the capacity to love God. Uh, God didn't create an army of robots who are just like automatons, just kind of doing whatever He says with sheer determinism. Rather, God gave us the freedom to love Him or reject Him because robots cannot choose, and because robots cannot choose, robots cannot love. God wants to be in a relationship with us, and for that reason, He gave us free will. 
He gave us the capacity to choose. And this is clear if you read Genesis 1 to 3, where God said to them, you can eat anything in the garden, but don't eat from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat from that tree, you will surely die. He gave us the freedom to choose because he gave us the capacity to love. Now, these shallow faith believers, when they heard what Jesus said, they were puzzled by what he said. I mean, they did like, the truth will set us free? Jesus, come on. Like, the truth, free from what, right? Why did they need to be free, they said? Because we've never been slaves. We're from the line of Abraham, a noble line, the promised bloodline. We are Abraham's sons, not Abraham's slaves. Sons have rights. Slaves do not. Now, it's interesting. If you read the response, it, it is rather odd because Israel had, in fact, been slaves for much of their history. <laughs> they were slaves in Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, and now in Rome. So we're not sure exactly why they framed it that way, but maybe they were talking about a different kind of slavery. Maybe they were talking about an inward sort of slavery. It's very difficult to say. But what did Jesus mean by slavery? Let's keep reading. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Here's the second observation. Sin enslaves. So, so Jesus is bringing clarity to this conversation, and he says, what are we slaves to? Well, we're actually slaves to sin. Now, l- let me just hit the pause button for a second this morning. Uh, I realize that for some of us listening this morning and, and some of us checking us out online, that, that the word sin might kind of set you on edge just a little bit, okay? Uh, because I, I realize that for some, it's, it's not a culturally appropriate word. It's not a politically correct word. It's not something that we would normally hear about or like to hear about in our cultural uh, conversation. And, and there's lots of reasons for this. I mean, I, I think sometimes the word sin has been wielded by televangelists and street preachers to just kind of bludgeon people or... I also think that the therapeutic movement of the last several decades uh, has exchanged the language of sin for sickness, so people are, are broken rather than people being sinful. Um, I also think that the word sin has been used by dry-hearted, self-righteous people to declare war on appropriate pleasure. God gave us the earth and so much in it for pleasure, for pleasure within boundaries, within constraints, but there are some people who are just like, are going to throw out that sin word just to put a clamp on any form of pleasure. They want to rain on people's parade, as it were. So I say all that to say, I get it. I understand. There is cultural baggage associated with the word sin. But in the Bible, the word sin simply means to miss the mark. And behind this phrase, it assumes that that we have a God who created the world lovingly, and in this world, he's created a moral order, which is a reflection of his very moral character. And that in this moral order, there is sort of a moral code, a sense of right and wrong. And when we as human beings who have freedom diverge from this moral code, what are we doing? We are missing the mark. We are sinning. So as it turns out, there's actually not a better word to describe sin than sin. Now, the Bible is very clear on this one point. We all have this in common. 
Everyone sins. Everyone misses the mark. I mean, Bob, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and the truth of God is not in us. Right? So, so we all miss the mark, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways, different degrees of separation from the, from the target, okay? But we all practice sin. And, and in this text, Jesus is saying that the reason why this comes so easily to all of us is because we are slaves to sin. In fact, if you want evidence of this, Jesus is saying, you simply need to look at our lives. The very fact that we regularly practice sin demonstrates our slavery to sin. That's the point he's making to them. And, and you know, the Bible affirms this in, in, in other places. Uh, when the first humans obviously disobeyed God, it says that sin entered into the world and we inherited that. Uh, David would say this in Psalm 51 and Verse 5, he'd say, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. If you read Paul in Romans, he unpacks this. He talks about how we inherited this sin nature, and because of that, sin reigns in our mortal bodies, right? So in other words, we are slaves to sin in our natural state as human beings. This is, this is all throughout Scripture. But it was Malcolm Muggeridge who said this, the, the, the famous writer. Here's what he said. He says, the depravity of man is that at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. And yet there are, there are thousands of years of empirical evidence to support the doctrine of original sin. There's no other doctrine in Scripture that has so much actual empirical support for its reality. Uh, from the murder of Abel and his brother Cain to modern-day holocausts and genocides, I mean, this reality is really difficult to ignore. Uh, I mean, just go to Twitter. Uh, just go to Twitter, get into the search box, and type election 2020 and spend five minutes reading all of the comments and it'll be hard to come away from this one incontrovertible fact. Human beings are pretty sinful. Like we're pretty broken people. It's hard to ignore. Now, as it turns out, the more that we practice sin, the more that it pushes us further into slavery. Sometimes the punishment for sin is just, in fact, more sin. I mean, no, nobody wakes up in the morning and decides they're going to commit the biggest sins out of the blue. Wake up in the morning and say, hey, I think I'm going to become an axe murderer today. Yeah, that's a lofty goal. I'm into that. Now, nobody does that. Nobody wakes up and just suddenly decides that. Instead, what happens is we walk through a series of doors that eventually lead us to our worst imagined destination. So when sins like anger or addiction or lust go unchecked without truth, they move you towards darker and darker places. So we keep moving further and further away from the mark, further and further away from the words of Jesus, further and further away from his truth. And the punishment for sin oftentimes for many of us is just more sin, which wrecks us even more. Now, you've got to imagine, these, these guys are listening to this in that day, okay? These shallow believers. And the implication of what Jesus is saying for them is huge. I mean, this would have been like a smackdown from Jesus on them. Because what he's saying is, first of all, he's saying, you're not true sons of Abraham, which is for them, like, what? I always thought I was, right? So he's saying, your biological lineage, your genealogy, your birth certificate, I don't care if you're a bar card-carrying birth certificate member of the tribe of Abraham, it doesn't matter. It is not enough to save you. As a matter of fact, you guys are no different than anybody else. You're all in the same pool together. You are all slaves and not sons. And because you're slaves, you have no permanent place in the family of God. Wow. That's the thing about Jesus. He doesn't pull any punches, does he? He never seems to. So the question is, if I'm a slave, 
then how can I be free? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 36, here's what it says. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Here's the third observation, is that the son has the authority to bring freedom. Were these shallow believers trying to kill Jesus? Well, the answer is, well, not yet, right? At least not physically, but they soon would, right? Because at this point, all they really wanted to do was kill Jesus' momentum, shut him down, ghost him, cancel him, right? Get, get Jesus just to stop talking, okay? You're making me un- a little bit nervous here. But eventually, it would be those from this shallow group of believers who would say to Pilate, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And, and at this point in the story, Jesus is essentially he's looking into the darkness of their hearts, and he sees where it's going. He knows what's happening at the end of the tunnel. He knows how this story ends. And he's saying, this is only further proof of your slavery, the fact that you want to do this, that you want to kill me. And, and, and so the point Jesus is essentially making is this, is, is there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Your family tree won't save you. All of your hard work, your Torah keeping, your keeping of the Talmud, that is not going to save you. At the end of the day, you're still a slave. And Jesus says that the only way you can be saved is actually through me. Only the Son has the authority to set people free from their bondage to slavery. Only Jesus, who is the true son of Abraham, the true son of God, can do this. And as a matter of fact, in John 3, verse 35, Jesus says this. He says, the father loves the son, and he has given all things into his hand. Jesus, as the inheritor, uh, as the true inheritance of, of, the, of the, the father, is the one who's been given the authority to do this. And Jesus, when he said this, he was ultimately, he was pointing us to where? He was pointing us towards Calvary. You see, through, through his death on the cross, Jesus would break the power of sin. He would shatter its shackles and make way for each and every one of us to no longer be slaves. So through the cross of Jesus Christ, he does two things. On the one hand, he, he frees us from the penalty of sin, but on the other hand, Jesus actually frees us from the power of sin. See, the cross paid the penalty that we deserve for our sins. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, there is a cost to missing the mark, and that cost is spiritual separation from God, eternal lostness, spiritual and physical death. But through the cross of Jesus Christ, he paid that penalty on our behalf. He paid it all. Jesus was ransomed. He ransomed us with his very own life. And for each and every one of us, for, for those of us online and those of us in the house, listen, we can access this free gift of God in one way. We access it through faith. We, we access it by, by giving ourselves to Christ, by putting our complete trust in Him in full surrender, inviting Him to become the Savior and Lord of our lives. That's how, how we receive the, um, this free gift. It's through faith. But the cross not only frees us from the penalty of sin, the cross also frees us from the power of sin. Here's what Paul writes in Romans 6. He says, We know that our old self, so the slavery self, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. See, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, a supernatural event takes place. The power of sin within us is broken. 
In other words, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are set free. And so instead of being slaves, we are transferred over from being slaves to being sons. We become children of God, sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. The power of sin that was there reigning over us is broken through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is given to us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. So the question is, well, does that mean I, mean, does that mean I never sin? Well, no, that's not what it means at all. It just means that you don't have to sin anymore because sin no longer has power over us. I mean, we still need to learn what it means to be sons as opposed to being slaves. So there's a retraining of our hearts and minds that needs to take place. And this is going to take time and this is going to take effort. And this is going to be done through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives as we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to change us. And it happens by walking in obedience to Jesus' teachings. Remember, what did Jesus say? He said, the truth will set you free. So when you set your moral compass on Christ himself and follow that, it leads us towards freedom. When we abide in the truth of Christ's words, it leads us towards a freedom. And, and that takes time. That takes training. It's a transforming of the renewing of our minds as we seek to do that. You remember earlier on I said that, you know, we talked about freedom from and freedom for. This is, this is where it, it all comes full circle today. Jesus sets us free from the power of sin. But Jesus sets us free to become sons and daughters. This is our guiding vision as believers in Christ. This is the good that we aspire to in our freedom. Freedom from the power of sin, slaves. Freedom for sons and daughters of God. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And for Jesus, truth leads us towards freedom. The question I have for each and every one of us this morning is simply this. What will you do with this freedom? For some of us who are believers in Christ already, who have been set free from the power of sin, who are no longer slaves, will you walk in the truth and allow the Holy Spirit to transform you so that you live as sons and daughters of the King? And for those of you who are seeking and, and you're kicking the tires of faith and you're checking out church and, and, and you're investigating who this Jesus was, maybe today's the day that you would say, yeah, today today I'm going to walk in freedom. I'm going to step into freedom for the first time. I'm going to receive that free gift of salvation that Jesus gives. And I'm going to surrender my life under him and invite him into my life to change me and to set me free. And maybe that's you today. Whatever you, wherever you are, the question still remains. What will you do with this freedom? Let's pray. And just as our hearts are bowed before the King of Kings, who's here with us and who loves us, who's for us,
Maybe you need to answer that question to him. He's asking us, what will you do with my freedom? I'll give you a moment to respond to him from your heart. Our loving and gracious God, I thank you that the best thing about your grace is it's free. Thank you for that. Thank you for initiating relationship with us. Thank you for inviting us into your family. And through the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives, we desperately need you to help us to walk in freedom every single day. Thank you that through the cross, the power of sin has been broken. And receive that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.